Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, please visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Steve Fowler. Hey, good idea, Sam Alliance. Thanks for joining us for worship today. Uh, we are in week three of a series that we have called Overcomer. It's a study of the book of Revelation. And uh, we got started a couple weeks ago. We talked about the fact that this is a book that a lot of people avoid because it's really difficult to understand. There's symbols and there's numbers. And we talked about the fact that actually... Those symbols, those numbers carry meaning with them and uh, help us understand what's going on there, especially as we learn the language of the breadth of Scripture. We talked about marinating ourselves in the Scriptures so that we can better understand and not avoid a book like Revelation, which so many people sort of just kind of keep at arm's distance from. And last week, uh, Kari Minarchek, who pastors kindergarten through second grade, did a fantastic job looking at Revelations chapters 2 and 3. She talked about these letters to the seven churches. Now, just pause there for a moment because, uh, again, numbers have meaning. The number seven, uh, it, it, it communicates fullness or completeness, like seven days in a week. That's a full week. Uh, we do know there were more than seven churches, and that when Kari taught us from those passages that there are churches like Colossae and Corinth and Thessalonica and Antioch that aren't mentioned, but that those are, letters are for the complete church, the, the full church, which includes you and I, and that's why it's so important that we study this, and, it, and so important that we listen to what Kari had to say to us, because she talked about joining on the airplane ride and getting perspective and a, a, a kingdom perspective. And she invited us to sort of lay on that, uh, that chiropractor's, chiropractor's table and to be realigned and to imagine if, if the Spirit of God were to write us a letter, what would he say as individuals? And what would he say to us as a church collectively? Um, so if you haven't heard uh, Kari's talk last week, I'd encourage you to, to do that. And this week, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And uh, you might want to find your way to Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to read it here in, in a moment. A lot of you know that one of my favorite pastimes, the things I love to do just sort of just recreate myself is to go fishing. I love being on the water. I used to do that for a living. And when I was first learning how to fish, I'm at a river with a friend, and he's teaching me how to fish for steelhead, and, and he pauses, and he gets really excited and says, hey, throw your lure right ahead of this boulder, that submerged boulder over there, and there's a, there's a steelhead right behind it. Just toss up a little bit, swing right by it, and, and I'm looking for this boulder that he's talking about, and I cannot see the boulder for the life of me, and I come to the conclusion that I can't see it because I'm colorblind, maybe that's the issue, and he quickly runs over and puts his sunglasses on my face and on that day, I discovered the magic of Polaroid sunglasses. You know those sunglasses that block UV rays. And all of a sudden, I saw a whole new world below the waterline on that, on that river. I saw rocks and logs. And yes, I saw that boulder. But more importantly, I saw the fish that I wasn't seeing. And I just, this new vision came to me and, uh, and it obviously helped me grow in, in my job and effectiveness as a fisherman. And I, I never go to a lake or a river or to the ocean without a pair of Polaroid sunglasses because it helps me see things as they really are. 
When we get to Revelation chapter 4, that very thing is happening. Uh, John is going to see uh, things as they really are. Uh, he's going to see a dimension that he has not seen into before. And it's going to be open to him, and it's going to give him significant understanding in some really dark and difficult days. Remember, the context here for the book of Revelation is John is exiled to Patmos for speaking of Jesus. And the church is being persecuted. Emperors like Nero and Domitian are significantly harming and torturing and making life difficult for anyone who's aligned themselves with Jesus. And so John, one day in his own private worship, is encountering this this supernatural realm. And I want to read to us from Revelation chapter 4 what he sees next as we continue in the series. So Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, John writes, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald, emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. And whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to, to the one sitting on the throne, the, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And they exist because you created what you pleased. This is God's holy word. John has had the glasses put on his eyes. He's seeing things as they really are. Again, remember, the church is suffering intense persecution. We know from history that in one year, over 40,000 Christians were thrown to the lions. We know that many were burned to the stake. Some lost property. Many lost their businesses or lost their, their employment. These are dark days for the church. And when you're going through difficulty, if you're going through a difficult time, you are probably asking some questions that the early church is asking, as in, like, what's going on here? Why is evil and chaos and destruction ruling the day? Why does it seem like what wickedness is winning out? I mean, I, I thought I gave my life to Jesus. It, maybe we might even cry out like the psalmist and say, God, are you sleeping? God, are you, are you there? Or perhaps, maybe if you have some idea that, yes, there is a throne, perhaps we have come to the conclusion that 
Like happened at our capital here in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks, there was a, a, a protest, a march on the heavenly throne, and there was a heavenly coup, and, and there's disorder in heaven because there's disorder and there's destruction here on earth. These are the kind of questions that we ask when there's suffering going on. John gets a pair of glasses, it's put on him, and what he sees is astonishing. Revelation chapter 3 ends with a closed door. Jesus knocking on the door, laid out, lay out a sea, trying to get into his church. Revelation chapter 4 begins with an open door, an open door into the heavenlies. And what John sees is the supreme headquarters of heaven. He sees central command, and he sees the throne, and the throne is not unoccupied. God is there. We think of thrones often as we like the idea of thrones. We, we imagine like Millions of thrones, like we all get to say, but there is a one single throne in heaven in which someone who is beautifully trustworthy, who sits on it. Not a tyrannical ruler, not someone who's aloof, who doesn't uh, even care about what's going on with those that he rules over. No, there is one who is so beautiful and he's surrounded by elders, 24 elders. Bible historians will tell you that the emperor Domitian was also surrounded by 24 leaders. They were bodyguards. And uh, history also teaches us that when Domitian would go to the games, he would go to the Colosseum, and when the Christians were being thrown to the lions, he made it a, a religious event. He took with him priests dressed in white, and they wore gold crowns. And it's interesting, interesting how, how Satan often counterfeits what the realities are in the kingdom of heaven. And we see this picture begin to unfold about the beauty of God and the worship of God. And we see pictures that are confounding. And, and you get to places like the sevenfold spirit of God. And hopefully as you've been marinating yourself in scripture, you're reminded of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, where these seven different aspects of who the Holy Spirit is, is laid out for us. It's the fullness of the Spirit there in the throne room. And if you're not careful, you might miss a little detail here that would be so significant for those in the early church as they read this letter and heard it read to them. It's just, it seems like a, just a short little sentence that is a little bit of data that is like easily skipped over. There's a sea. It's a, it's a sea of glass. It's it's a sea, it's, it's crystal clear. You can see to the bottom and it's there in front of the throne. In, in the early church, they would have thought of some of the, uh, the writings and some of the thoughts they had of their own Jewish culture. I mean, the Canaanites believed that there were these evil beings, Leviathans, who lived in the sea that created all kind of disorder and chaos. Even the Babylonians believed that in the sea below the waterline, there was significant destruction and disorder and evil that would manifest itself. And yes... Even in the scriptures, we get hints of this idea of all that is wrong in the world being from the sea. Check out Psalm 74. The, the psalmist pens these words and says, You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures in the wilderness. Or Isaiah chapter 27. We get another glimpse of this picture of the sea. On that day, the Lord, with his cruel and great strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Levi Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will kill the dragon that is in the sea. 
Friends, as we continue in our study of Revelation, what we'll see is that all that sort of thwarts or attempts to thwart the purposes of God, all that is coming against God and his people will rise out of the sea. Revelation chapter 13, we see a beast coming out of the sea. But the good news is, is that by the time you get to the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter uh, 21, we see a different picture. But you know, as I think about the sea and I think about chaos and disorder, I think about my, my days on the river. I think about those moments when uh, I'm on the Columbia River and the wind is being whipped up and the swells of the river are massive and you're seeing a picture of a windsurfer having a great day on the river. But imagine yourself in a 12-foot aluminum boat, which I, in my foolishness, have done in situations like this. Not smart, not wise, as you're just bailing water from your little boat as the wind is whipping up giant swells and uh, it gives you some insight into uh, how dangerous the seas can be. But then there's those moments where the river is like glass, like this picture of the same river, not a bit of wind, the sun rising, it's calm. You can get from point A to point B as fast as you can. You can fish exactly as you want to fish. It's calm, it's restful. You don't have the banging and the clanging of your boat as it goes up one swell and smashes down and waiting for the next swell to potentially swamp you. Friends, in heaven, the throne room, the sea is like glass. John is telling us that, yes, while in our world there's chaos, yes, in our world, while there's suffering and there's difficulty and we're going through us, while the questions may rise, God, how could you let us do this? Which is kind of an interesting question because it seems like we're holding God culpable for the sin and the destruction we've allowed into the world. That's a whole other sermon. But we're crying out, God, where are you? And what John tells us is, friends, the throne is not unoccupied. There is one who sits on it who's beautifully trustworthy. And the realities of the kingdom is that the sea is like glass. Chaos and disorder have been defeated. And John is helping us see by putting glasses on our eyes that God is still sovereign. He's still in control. And in fact, again, as you get to the end of Revelation, you read Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, in which John pens these words, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea. What is John saying? Is he saying that when we get to heaven, there's not going to be lakes, there's not going to be creeks, there's not going to be streams, no ocean? I mean, that's a bummer. I love the water. No, he's not saying the beauty of the ocean and the beauty of a lake on a calm summer day is non-existent or the sound of a bubbling brook or the roar of a waterfall is non-existent in heaven. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying, friends, there's coming a day when all the chaos will be defeated. There's coming a day when all, what, all that we would describe as evil, all the injustice will be dealt with and it will be no more. Think of the power of that message to the early church in their suffering. Think of the power of that message to you and I today. In fact, it would do us good to stop for a moment and to name some of the chaos, some of the storms that you and I are living in. You see, some of you today are in a season where the tension is rising in your spirit because your, mar your marriage is strained. These have been difficult days. 
Or perhaps you're living under some financial chaos. Your business is barely holding on. You lost your job or your hours were cut back and there's a financial storm you find yourself in. Or you just might be exhausted. You're caring for special needs children. And you're wondering how you're going to get through this, this day, not alone this next week. Or perhaps it's depression. It's a storm of anxiety. Name the chaos. Name the difficulty. Name the suffering. It could be a diagnosis. You're living with cancer. It might be a struggle, a chronic pain that you've had in your body. Friends, there is someone who's sitting on a throne. He's beautifully trustworthy. And yes, he can calm storms like he did that one day and stood up on the bow of the ship and said, peace be still. And it's our opportunity to just pause for a moment and allow him to speak those words of peace over us. As you name the chaos, the difficulty, the suffering that you're dealing with today, would you just allow the team to Sing these words over. You may want to sing them as well, but you may just want these words to be sung over you. If you just pause in the middle of a talk and soak in the realities of our God who sits on a throne. Revelation chapter 5 reads, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. It was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I, John, began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. This is God's holy word. Friends, it's this legendary tale that you are probably familiar with 
uh, written of the days when Britain was in turmoil, longing for a leader, enemies pushing in to take, take territory. And the legendary t- tale goes as it, there's this, this sorcerer who uh, creates the sword and places it in a stone. Uh, the sorcerer named Merlin, and the sword in the stone is a, is a, is a fairly well-known tale. England in its dark days and, and looking for someone, a leader who will lead Britain into the, the, the golden age. And you, if you know the story, you know that people go and they try and pull that sword out of a stone and they can't do it. But one day, a leader comes, someone comes, his name is Arthur, and he pulls Excalibur, the, the sword. Not many swords have names, that one has a name pulls Excalibur from the stone, and the rightful king is identified. And the tide of hope and anticipation rises in a nation because the the golden days of Camelot have been ushered into being. If you can kind of uh, imagine the the tension, the palpable tension in in a season of darkness, longing for a leader to take us out and to restore us, I think you get a sense of the palpable tension in heaven as John, with his glasses on, is seeing what's happening, and he sees a scroll written on both sides. That would have been unusual. Most scrolls are just written on one side. So both sides mean that there's a, there's a ton of, of things in there that need to be revealed. Seven seals. We'll get to the seals here in, in, in the weeks to come. But John is weeping bitterly because there is no one worthy to pull the sword from the, so, from the stone, so to speak. There's no one who, who, who qualifies, and he's weeping, and in this moment of tension and sorrow and bitterness, one of the 24 elders comes to John and says, stop weeping. The lion of the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, or some of your translations say the root of David, but those two phrases are messianic titles. The lion from the tribe of Judah, that, that's a prophecy from the Old Testament. And, uh, and the root of David, David, he was the king of the golden age. And all of Israel has been waiting for the Messiah to come. And if you've read the Gospels and you've heard the disciples even ask the question after Jesus has risen from the dead, are, are you going to set up Camelot now? Is this when you're going to set up your political kingdom and you're going to subdue our enemies? All of God's people are looking for the Messiah to come and cause all suffering to end. And friends, if we're not careful, we're going to miss the riddle here that John is going to solve for us in how to respond when the waves are being whipped up on the sea and chaos seems to rule the day. We, we might miss this, and it's really important that we see what John is seeing here. Because the elder comes to him and says, Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah... The root of David, you know, the David who would go out and he would kill Goliath and take his sword and he would go out and slay enemies in the morning and go home and at night he'd write songs about him. That's, that's the one who's worthy. And John, perhaps expecting to see a muscular military general, sees nothing of the sort. He sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, he sees a slaughtered lamb. It's fascinating because... What we see here is a bit of the riddle of how to be an overcomer. Because John is fully expecting this, this muscular, this, this powerful, mighty Messiah as he's heard the terms. But when he, took, when he takes a look, what he sees is defeat. What he sees is weakness. He sees the lamb. And you and I know that the slaughtered lamb went to the cross and victory was achieved. We know that the lion triumphs by becoming a lamb. 
And we celebrate this, and we see the weakness of the lamb. But is this weakness an absence of power? A thousand times, no. It's Jesus who has laid down his divine privileges, his, his rights, and has taken on flesh, and who willingly, like a lamb, goes to the slaughterhouse. He doesn't, he doesn't use power. He doesn't use divine power to defeat Romans and to, and to silence Pharisees and to set the record straight. He doesn't just make a push for, for that kind of power. No, actually, he does something even more powerfully. He chooses in his wisdom when he's reviled and insulted to keep his mouth shut and not repay evil with evil. He doesn't have his life taken from him. No, he's the lion from the tribe of Judah. But in the weakness of the lamb, he chooses to go the way of the lamb, and he lays all that down and goes to the cross because he knows that at the cross is where the enemy will be defeated. At the cross is where the churning sea of life that the early church was experiencing through persecution, the chaotic, whipped-up waves that you are experiencing, whatever chaos, perhaps, or difficulty you're going through, will not be overcome by a display of power. It will actually be overcome by power displayed in weakness. See, I wonder if we have the maturity to hear this, I wonder if we would be content to hear the Spirit of God say to us, as he did to Paul, my, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, why the lamb and not the lion? Why not the powerful display of the lion versus the lamb? Because God is showing contempt for moves for power and control and manipulation. He's showing contempt for the world's ways of getting their agendas done. What, he, what he's doing is he's powerfully showing through weakness that, yes, while a lion will inflict hurt on others, the lamb of God will actually take on the hurts of others and calm the sea and bring restoration. It's a powerful, but I wonder, while we celebrate this, we sing songs about this, and we love this story, don't we? We love the fact that, that Satan is disarmed at the cross. We sing songs about the lamb. We love the weakness of the lamb. We love the wisdom of God. We love the victory of the lamb. But I wonder if we had the maturity to embrace the weakness of a lamb and actually walk in the way of a lamb because that is indeed what we're called to. We're called to walk in the footsteps of our Christ, our Messiah, our Master. This is not a call to resignation, but a call to reliance. This is not a call for timidity, but a call for trust. This is not a call for just, just despair. It's a call for discipleship. Because many of the victories that we long for, many of the ways that we were called to be overcomers will not come from walking the way of the lion. They come from walking in the way of the lamb. And friends, everything out there will tell you quite the opposite. Consider for a moment a new apparel company that is started by a CEO. His name is Sean Whalen. Here's a picture of him on the screen. His apparel company is called Lions, not Sheep. He's muscular. 
He's wearing his tank top, and many of his photo shoots, he's sitting on a motorcycle, and he's got sitting in an industrial complex, and everything he looks like exudes strength. And his words that flow from his mouth call people to take a stand and tell people to tell it like it is. And if you go to his website, you can listen to his YouTube talk and hear his speech laced with profanity as he invites people to join his lion's den and to stand up and courageously go against the forces of evil and talk about all kinds of powerful moves and ways to take back our country all the while, while behind him on the counter is a statue of Jesus, the Lamb. It's a paradox, isn't it? It's a, it's a call to courage, yet at the same time, it's not the courageous steps that the Lamb took. It's going after power and control, much like the world goes after power and control. And we get sucked into this pretty easily, don't we? I mean, just think about the last 30 or 40 years of history within the evangelical church or in, even in America and, and how we want to get things done. And oftentimes what we do is we choose the way of the lion. We seek power. We seek control. And we seek to get the right person voted in. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have people that you agree with voted into office. That's not bad. And I'm not saying it's bad to pursue legislation and, and right injustices. I think it's a very wise thing. But what I'm very concerned about is that as we have this picture in the book of Revelation and we see a chaotic storm and we see an early church suffering persecution, what we do not see is power displayed in such a way that an attack on Rome takes place. We don't see a storming of the Roman city and places of power. What we see is a slaughtered lamb. And I wonder in these days, as we think about the suffering and the difficulties that we are going through, if we're not clamoring for the way of the lion rather than embracing the way of the lamb, because we don't believe that you can be an overcomer and walk the path of weakness and walk the way of the Lamb. Yet at the same time, we celebrate that's exactly how our Messiah conquered chaos, stilled the waters, and the sea is no more. Friends, our Christ didn't open his mouth, our Christ did not return an insult. Our Christ took the beatings. He did not, like a lion, inflict hurt on others. He absorbed the hurt and the wounds of others. And he has called us to follow him and walk in the way of the Lamb with him. Will we? Will we overcome the way our Christ has overcome? Think of the early church, which poses this question. Am I walking the way of the lion? Or the way of the Lamb. Think about how that question would have been felt by those in the early church who were suffering so terribly. Think about that question and the suffering, the difficulty, perhaps the chaos and the confusion that you are experiencing today. Which path will you choose? And I want to suggest to you that not just the book of Revelation, but the totality of Scripture points to a sacrificial Lamb who invites his followers to walk in his footsteps. And could it be the victory that you're longing for will be achieved by the grace that is sufficient for you because his power is made perfect in our weakness? What's it look like to walk the way of the Lamb? 
Well, see, the way of the lamb is when someone insults you, you don't insult back. The way of the lion is to become defensive when someone accuses. The way of the lion is to, you've hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. The way of the lamb is forgiveness, as difficult as that journey can be. If you want to know which way you're walking, just look at what you post on social media. Is your tendency to engage in arguments and make sure your right is seen? And I do wonder what percentage of social media is even anywhere near wisdom. I'm not saying it's wrong or evil. I'm sure there's a place for it. But I wonder if it only just smells like the lion and has no resemblance to the lamb. What does what we post on self, the social media look like? Is, is it self-promotion? Self-preservation? Is your tendency to grab power or to let God's power exude through your weakness as you walk the way of the Lamb? Friends, there is a throne. It is occupied. There are elders. God doesn't need bodyguards. The 24 elders, many see, well, those are the 12 disciples, uh, those are the 12 tribes, perhaps, quite likely. But more importantly, there's one who's beautifully trustworthy sitting on the throne, and the sea is like glass. And the chaos and the evil and the destruction one day is all going to be away. And in the meantime, as we wait for that to happen, we have to resist the ploys for power and control, the way of the lion, and walk in the way of Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, and see that actually... This is how we become overcomers. Let's pray together. So, Father, how brilliantly wise you are. Unthinkable. I'm sure when the angels first saw this, they must have been scratching their heads. The Messiah sent to tell us and show us how to live and then Show us how to die. That we too could be resurrected just like he was resurrected. He's the firstborn of those who have been resurrected from the dead. And we too, in Christ, when we take our last, our, our last breath here on earth, we take our first breath in heaven. And we join that cloud of witnesses. You are incredibly wise. We need your wisdom today. Forgive us for the times that we have lashed out. Forgive us for the times we've questioned your character as the wind and the waves have been whipped up. And would you now continue to speak, peace be still over us. And even if the circumstances don't change, Lord, we will be content in the victory that is ours in the blood of the Lamb. For your word says that they overcame him, the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So we declare, Lord, worthy is the Lamb. We declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We join those elders. We throw down our golden crowns, and we just take all of our achievements, all the things that we perhaps may value, and see them as just mud and dirt. You are our treasure. We cling to you in these days, just as that early church clung to you in those dark days. Thank you. You sit on the throne. Receive our worship, we pray in your name. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, 
and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit SalemAlliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.